electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead other than surging bond yields this hour. We also have two big legal cases, the first concerning the fate of Sam Bankman-Fried, the second over the fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB. Trillions of dollars could hang in the balance. Details on both of them ahead. Plus, Microsoft's $9 billion AI tool, is it worth the hype? The first verdicts from users are in what they are, what it means for the competition, and why Microsoft stock is lower today. And we're weighing two different trades in the weight loss craze. One is a bail, the other may be a buy with 80% upside. The analysts behind both of those calls are here. But first, the biggest story of the day, of course, is bonds. Take a look at this chart of the 10-year yield at a 16-year high, uh, just uh, 4.78%. So we're right near session highs for today with major implications for Wall Street and Main Street. We start our drive to five today. What happens to housing if the yield on the 10-year hits 5% next? Get ready because that's the road we're on. We'll update you on mortgage rates in just a moment, too. And what does it mean for stocks? We start there today with Dom Chu. Well, it's decidedly negative. It was more mixed even with rising yields over the past several days here. But now even the Nasdaq is feeling the brunt of it and much more so than other parts of the market. Perhaps a catch up trade to the downside, if you want to call it that. The Nasdaq Composite Index currently down one and a half percent, 192 points to the downside, 13,115. Again, right near session lows. The Dow Industrial is down 336 points, about 1% downside there, 33,096. And the S&P 500, 4240 is the last trade there, down about 48 points, north of 1% in terms of declines. Even at the highs of the session, we were down roughly seven points, down about 66 points at the lows. So we're just kind of bouncing off some of those lower parts of the session. And by the way, for those watching the charts now, keep an eye on that level 4202 in the S&P 500. That represents that 200-day average price on a rolling basis, the 200-day moving average, so to speak. Some traders are watching that level just below where we are right now, so keep an eye on those. Kelly mentioned rates. It's good to put in perspective. We did mention, she did, that we are near session highs right now for yields on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note, 4.78%. You can see right here on an intraday basis, but you've got to look all the way back, just to put it in perspective, to mid-August of 2007, the last time we saw yields this high, that's how long it's been, just to put things in perspective. And remember, this sharp move higher is what's causing all the angst right now in the marketplace. We'll keep an eye on that. And then one other place that's seen kind of like that macro ripple effect of what's happening right now is in the value of the U.S. dollar. Rather than putting up the dollar index, which some people track, I'm going to put up an ETF that shows and tracks the value of the dollar and then moves along with it up or down depending on the value of that dollar index. The Invesco ETF that tracks the ticker UUP is up fractionally right now. But you can see here, I put up a one-year chart. At the lows, we had fallen about 10% on that lark. And now we're up about roughly 10 to 11 percent from there. So, again, Kelly, the dollar is going to be a huge story, especially as we talk about corporate results and earnings season coming up. Remember, many of those companies in the U.S. 
get a lot of their revenue outside the U.S. So what does it mean for a rising U.S. dollar and profits? True. We'll wait and see. A lot of pressure. Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Meantime, one of the Fed's voting members next year is out with some new comments on the economy. Let's get to Steve Leisman with those headlines. Steve. And important ones. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostock becoming among the first Fed officials to say outright he believes the current Fed interest rate is, quote, sufficiently restrictive. That's the benchmark forged by Fed Chair Jay Powell to determine if the Fed can stop and hold rates at current levels. I'm very much in a place, he told reporters earlier today, where I think our policy is sufficiently restrictive and that we can be patient. Fed Vice Chair for Banking Supervision Michael Barr yesterday said the Fed is at or near that level, suggesting he's close to Bostick's view, but not quite as definitive. Bostick's comment could mark him as an outlier on the board, with several Fed officials recently suggesting that they would favor an additional hike in 12 of 19 members actually forecasting one more hike this year. In fact, the probability of a final hike this year rising this morning to 31% for November, 47% for December, after a strong uh, job openings report implying continued strength in the labor market. In any event, Bostic suggesting the Fed shouldn't hike again doesn't offer much relief out there because he went on to say the Fed should hold rates at current levels, quote, for a long time and well into 2024. Asked about surging long-term bond yields with a 10-year, as Dom just said, hitting new 16-year highs of 475. Where are we now? 478 now. If I blink, I get it wrong. Uh, he said higher rates will help the Fed restrain the economy with corporate debt refinancing a potential drag, helping slow growth and bring down inflation. He added he doesn't believe that companies were really being severely impacted by higher rates now and that his main focus on the consumer. He said a soft landing within reach, but the Fed has to monitor carefully the slowing of the economy the next rate hike, Bostic says, the next rate move, Bostic says, the end of next year, one quarter point cut. It's still significant. We've seen him kind of approach this, exactly. this thinking, but this is the first time he's come out and yeah, said it. And, and I think what you have is you have those on the committee who are worried about lags mm -hmm. and those who are not. Right. One of the lags he points out is the corporate debt refinancing. He says another shoe to drop in the economy. Very interesting. All right, Steve, stay right there with Treasury sitting at decade highs. Let's talk more about the implications for the Fed and markets. Joining us, David Hardin is the CEO and CIO of Summit Global Investments. Guy Labat is chief fixed income strategist at Jenny Montgomery. Scott, welcome. Guy, I'll start with you. Um, <laughs> what are people saying in the in the pits, so to speak? Well, I suppose at this point, it's uh, it's uh, just hoping not to be carted out. Right. It's been a really brutal repricing for the long end of the U.S. yield curve over the course of the last few weeks in particular. So not only have interest rates come up, but the yield curve steepened very considerably. One way in which we measure this is an idea called the term premium, which is a, a hypothetical idea of how much over and above the expected path of Fed funds long-term bond yields are. <coughs> And this term premium has gone from pretty deeply negative around the middle of the year to positive uh, for the first time and call it about uh, 10 years or so, round numbers. And that could continue to climb uh, if indeed we get a period of consistently solid economic growth that lasts even beyond uh, this year. You know, you think this is about growth? I mean, obviously, we saw a little bit of a further move in jolts, but this was happening before that data. It was happening no matter what the data has been like the last couple of weeks. It's been driven by real yields. And the only culprit there I can find is the deficit. Yeah, which is also an excellent point. I think that's a little bit more of a short term item. But there's a lot of things that are adding supply of duration under the bond markets. First, as you referenced, is a budget deficit, which is wider uh, and is adding about $15 billion of uh, incremental supply per month. <clears throat> across the curve. The other thing, and I think this is a little bit understated, is that as the Bank of Japan considers relaxing its yield curve control policy, 
That's allowing the Japanese government bond markets to become more volatile mm -hmm. in longer maturities. And that effectively also adds a supply of interest rate risk to the markets. That has an effect. It's a little bit harder to measure. I can't point to a single number. No, you're like quite it. right. And the fact that both of those happen at the same time, the Treasury massively increased the size of its you know, funding needs in the first week of August at the same time that the Bank of Japan widened that long-term band to 1%. So these two factors both contributed to what's been, we should emphasize, it's not just a U.S. You know, sell-off that we've seen in bonds. It's been global. Um, you know, it's, it's driven yeah, by it's just more dramatic here. It's more, more dramatic. dramatic here, but I think the supply and demand imbalance is, is coming into focus, David. One of the interesting questions from a portfolio management point of view is, uh, do you buy bonds here? Do you buy them hand over fist and, and kind of put the money away and get it out of stocks and not have to worry about it? Or uh, is it quite the opposite? Are people now concerned because 60, 40 portfolios are down 5% the past couple months? Yeah, I think that's a great question. In our sense, I think you have to position your equity positions more defensively, minus utilities. I think staples and energy and other places are where you want to be with these yields where they're at. And quite frankly, you need to pick up some yield. So you need to pick up some of these bonds. Today, I think we are purchasing a 6.6 one year out municipal after tax equivalent yield. That's phenomenal. So I think there is uh, definitely value in the bond market, but also in the stock market. You've caught Steve's attention. Just linger on those muni. Six, six muni? Is that New York? Well, that, you know, that's a good question, Steve. We can manage your money after. <laughs> tax tax equivalent. Depends we can on your put bracket. You on another and, channel, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, just dwell for one more moment on what you think people should do. Yes, uh, bonds are attractive here, but they might also feel people who had bought even munis a year ago or any other or treasury, they might, people who bought I bought, I mean, there's a lot of people who have bought bonds and said, if I had waited, I could have gotten a better yield. So they might feel a little bit confused uh, now as well. Sure, I think that's understandable. And I think that they, you know, in general, helping investors to be in the right place at the right time is really, really important. So, you know, talk about dynamic tactical ETFs or something of this nature where they can help you get in the right space at the right time is very, very helpful. But I would consider staples. I would look at pharma and biotech. Uh, uh, consumer services is also a good play. But be very picky what companies you purchase in these space because yeah. some of them are very expensive at this time. And I, it, I, a little bit of what Michael Kantrowitz over at Piper Sandler has been talking about, it feels like the only thing that matters is, is being able to cover your interest costs. I mean, I don't care what sector you're in, what kind of company you are at this point. You know, what else? Steve, go ahead. <clears throat> well, I, I think there, if you're really going to get into it and roll up your sleeves, you need to really examine the balance sheet of these companies. And there are going to be companies that are going to be dramatically affected by this interest rate cost, and those are going to be less affected. And there's going to be declines in equities that will correctly reflect this added cost. And there will be sympathetic declines in, in similar equities that won't correctly reflect it. For right. example, you could see a whole industry going down with a certain benchmark being hurt with, um, uh, because that one particular benchmark company has a big interest cost. Others may not have that. It might take time. But then you also have to look at the bond part of it, the, the, the debt side of the, of the balance sheet. And you'll find that there are some pretty amazing, for example, Rick Reeder told me at Delivering Alpha, mm -hmm. he was buying uh, bank, AAA rated commercial paper, mm -hmm. like Key Bank, some of these other banks out there that were yielding more than 6% over one year terms. Now, I don't, th obviously you're taking something of a default risk on this, but 
if you're going to take default risk, I would think a AAA rate w- would be a place to do that. It's funny you mentioned the regional banks because that was getting some notice a moment ago. The KRE is back below 40. There it is at 39.95. Right. That's not what Rick Reader's talking about. He's talking about kind of playing the flip side of this. But um, you can see the components of that index are down on what generally has been this increase in rates. And, Guy, I'll bring it back to you. What stops the freight trade? All the technical analysts are like, this is overdone. They've been expecting yields to pull back, and yet they continue to prod higher and raising kind of those stresses on some highly levered companies and on the banks and things like that. What do you think stops it at this point? Well, so first, technical analysis is, is there to sort of establish where buyers and sellers meet. But there's a really, really powerful, we talked about it a minute ago, non-economic seller of bonds out there, which is the U.S. Treasury Department, right? They've got an issue for a budget deficit regardless of whether interest rates are higher or lower. So that kind of skews the technical analysis a little bit. I will agree the selling has been very violent. Um, I think there's a few markers which would get me interested in extending duration. We're not recommending that for clients yet. One marker uh, would be a spread between the two and 10-year Treasury note that's negative 26 basis points, so about 15 basis points less inverted than it was when we began our conversation today. And again, would be a positive spread between twos and tens as a second opportunity. I'm not sure exactly can, can when I that comes, but uh, at this rate, it's just going to be a few days. I, w- I want to make sure Dave gets the last word here, but I just want to interject. I've been talking to some big bond fund managers. They point out cash is a choice, and it's a choice essentially on timing the market. You may go into places in the belly of the curve right now and lose money, mm-hmm. but the question is, will you lose more than you would have lost if you were, for example, sitting in your, 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 your money market fund and overnight the market gets the idea the Fed is going to cut and all of a sudden they start coming down and those, those, that cash you make is earning, I don't know what the bottom of this, this is, maybe it's 3%, not 45 and you left right. 478 on the table. So it's not as clear-cut a choice. Yes, people have lost money and you need to be aware that you can lose money, but if you have a horizon, say, for this money of three, five, or seven years and you own three, five, or seven-year paper... The only thing that causes you to lose is you chickening out. <laughs> Dave, Dave, go ahead. We'll give you the last word on all of this and, and how much, if at all, you're adjusting people's portfolios. I, I think you have to adjust portfolios. But let's face it. Most timers lose money. Right. Right. And so it's very, very difficult to time the market. And I think Steve makes a very, very good point. You have to be tactical. Yes, you maybe have to make some moves in your portfolio to have some exposure here or there. But... Staying the course actually works out, especially if you have time on your hands. So very, very important to look at your risk tolerance as an investor, your time frame as an investor, and and work with your investment professional to get the portfolio that's right for you. I'm just going to be waiting to see. You know, Steve, the crazy thing about this is we can't even turn to you and say, when do you think the Fed might talk about stepping in and doing it? They, they can't. They're on the other side of this move. It's exactly but, what but Guy what said. But what I love about this, this money market thing, and I'm as guilty as anybody else of this, is all of a sudden, people who really sucked at timing the equity market now think they're going to time the bond market. <laughs> and let me tell you that, that is a much big, more of a losing proposition than trying to time equities. I know I'm bad at that. I, now, I have talked to investors who say, or you guys who manage a lot of money and say, I feel like we're going to get a little bit of an on-ramp here. Mm-hmm. And maybe I lose the first 
10 or 20 basis points in this move. But still, I think just people need to know they're making a call by staying in cash. It's absolutely right. Guys, thank you all. We appreciate it. Steve Leisman, Dave Harden, and Guy Labat. Meantime, the criminal trial of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is kicking off in lower Manhattan today. He's facing seven criminal counts of conspiracy and fraud over the collapse of FTX. And if convicted, he could be sentenced to more than 100 years in prison. Kate Rooney is outside the courthouse with the latest. Kate? Hey there, Kelly. So jury selection is underway at this point. Sam Bankman-Fried watched all of this from the defense table. We have a new court sketch, if you can see it. He's got a new haircut as well. He's sitting there in a gray suit. The jury and potential jurors are breaking for lunch at this point. They've already dismissed a bunch of jurors at this point. There were some conflicts of interest. One of the jurors works at an investment firm that invested in FTX, a venture firm called Insight. There's been a lot of talk about media coverage. One juror said that he had listened to a Joe Rogan podcast about it. So Judge Kaplan, though, underlining the fact that these jurors, if selected, they're going to have to essentially live in a bubble for six weeks. They can't be Googling this. They cannot talk to anybody about this. And they can't even Google the judge. He said, you're really going to have to live in a bubble. The list of juror questions that we're getting, it includes, do you have a negative opinion about cryptocurrencies if a crypto company were to fail? Do you feel that only the owners are to blame? And do you have any negative opinions about amassing wealth to give away to charity? It also mentions Bang Mc, Sam Beckman-Fried rather, having ADHD. They plan to say, raise your hand if you've never had any personal or professional experience with ADHD. And it could also ex- uh, affect some of Sam Beckman-Fried's body language in the courtroom. Sam Beckman-Fried has pled not guilty to seven counts of fraud and conspiracy over the collapse of what was once a $32 billion crypto exchange he founded, FTX. He has been in custody since August, and he's argued that he didn't know about some of the financial issues going on at FTX. Prosecutors need to prove intent on the side of Bankman-Fried. That is key there. Four of his top lieutenants, though, and inside circle have pled guilty, pleaded guilty, which legal experts say makes this case especially challenging. For the defense team, at least three of those executives do plan to testify. Kelly. Kate, for now, thank you very much. Kate Rooney, NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst Danny Savalos is standing by. Danny, to give us some reaction to uh, what could be an imposing, shall I say, uh, sentence if it is ultimately what is imposed. The statutory maximum is always a gigantic number. You add up all the potential sentences, the maxes, and run them consecutive because, in theory, that is the maximum potential sentence. But it's not the likely sentence. But still, in a case like this, in, under the federal sentencing guidelines, the loss amount can send your sentence into the stratosphere. And the government here, if Sam Bankman-Fried is convicted, is going to be able to point to likely millions of dollars, which would drive that recommended sentence uh, way, way up there into the many decades. So you may not approach the statutory maximum, but you might get a good percentage of the way there. Now, ultimately, sentencing guidelines ever since the Supreme Court decision over a decade ago are just advisory. So the judge can go below the recommended sentence. But Make no mistake about it, it is the loss amount if Bankman Freed is convicted that will really hurt him when it comes to sentencing. All right. For now, Danny, thanks. We'll see you a little bit later on. We appreciate your time today, Danny Savalos. Coming up, we're kicking off the drive to five with the 10-year yield only about 20 basis points below that level. Up next, we'll look at the fallout already on mortgage rates and the housing market. 
Plus, the fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, is hanging in the balance right now as the Supreme Court weighs in on the watchdog agency. We'll look at what exactly is on the docket and the ripple effects the decision could have. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's down 368 points, or 1.1 percent right now, just off session lows. The S&P's down one and a quarter percent. NASDAQ, 1.7 percent. Russell's one and a half. Ten-year yield is back up near session highs, just two bips, we call it, below 480. Uh, yeah, and you can see there is not much move after those more dovish comments from Bostic. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. As the yield on the 10-year gets closer to 5%, we're seeing the impact in different areas of the economy. Housing is one of them because the 10-year is a benchmark for mortgage rates. Today, we kick off our drive to 5, and we're already seeing it play out in real time as mortgage rates have jumped to a new long-term high. Diana Olick is here with those details. Black Knight's Andy Walden also joins us for more impact this is having and will continue to have on the housing market. Welcome to both of you. Diana, what are the headlines? The average rate on the popular 30-year fixed just hit 7.72%. That, according to Mortgage News Daily, mortgage rates follow loosely the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which, as Kelly said, has been climbing this week on strong economic data. Rates have not been this high since the end of the year 2000. It's all thanks to stronger data than expected to start October. Today, the jobs... Uh, the JOLT report is pushing yields higher. Higher rates have crushed affordability, hitting both the new and existing home sales markets. While builders had been benefiting from the tight supply of existing homes for sale, higher mortgage rates are a major concern now. Builder sentiment slipped into negative territory in September for the first time in five months. Now, to put these rates in perspective, for a borrower buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fix, the monthly payment today is about $930 more than it was when rates were at 3% during the height of the pandemic. And Kelly, that is real money. And that is having a very chilling effect on home sales. And Andy, I turn to you because a lot of people have said maybe the nascent hope for rebound in the housing market is now evaporating, especially after last or the latest round of housing data. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the latest housing data, it was it was red hot coming into August. We hit a fourth consecutive record high. We're two and a half percent above last year. Annual home price growth rate, which is kind of that headline number everybody looks at, was effectively flat back in May and then reaccelerated to three point eight percent and was ready to push higher. But you're absolutely right, right? Buying power is down 
roughly 6% from when those numbers came in. So it could take some of the steam out of what had been a pretty hot housing market this summer and heading into the fall. So when we say take the steam off, Andy, so far the market's been kind of frozen. If anything, the, the Fed's hikes have been pro-cyclical where inventories shrunk. Um, you know, the prices have, have stabilized and started to rise. Do you throw that out the window now? A little bit, right? I mean, absolutely, when you look at the demand side, it's, it's affecting it as you would expect. Demand has hit kind of its, its lowest point during the pandemic over the last three weeks, certainly kind of constraining the market and affordability at its lowest level in 40 years. At the same time, that same lever, that same interest rate lever that's driving down demand, as you just mentioned, is, is pulling down supply. And we're actually 8% below where we were last year in terms of supply. 70% of markets are down year to date on a seasonally adjusted basis. And so, you know, it is causing that gridlock in the market. You're seeing this constrained demand and further constraint expected from these rising rates. But the big question when it comes to how will the market react is what's inventory going to do? Are we going to see any kind of inventory building here over the next few months? If so, yeah, it could cool prices down. If not, you're going to just see this stalemate play out in the market. Diana? But Andy, I was wondering also, you know, we saw prices actually pull down at the beginning of this year when mortgage rates were actually lower. Prices then started rising this summer when mortgage rates were rising, which is not the way the housing market usually works. <laughs> when is that When is that dynamic going to change, as you said, that we will see prices fall? And if so, as you were just saying, how much do you think prices can come down? I mean, there, there's the potential to be a lot. I just don't think we'll see it. And it, again, it comes back to inventory, right? So if you look at home affordability itself and, and what it would take to normalize the market today, it's a 35% correction in price or a 4% decline in rates or a 55% growth in income, some combination of those. Those are massive movements that we're talking about. And none of them are going to happen in a vacuum. And none of those one single factors is going to make the move, right? So there's this big potential for movement. There's this you know, this, this view that housing is overvalued. The problem is that the lack of inventory is keeping those prices very, very sticky when they should be pulling back. And, you know, we just haven't seen that inventory build. Now, in the last few years, there's been this late year kind of, you know, above seasonal average growth in inventory. And that's what we're going to be really watching over the next few months. Do we see what we saw in late 2021? Do we see what we saw in late 2022, where you started to see that inventory build and prices soften? We've started to see some hints at it, but haven't seen a big move yet. So we'll be watching that inventory data really, really closely because that's really going to tell us where home prices are going late this year. All right. That's a great point. For now, thank you both. Andy Walden, Diana Olick on an eye-popping day for the housing market. Still to come, can Microsoft's newest AI tool live up to the hype? Or will high rates force companies to rein in their IT spending? The fallout from Microsoft's bottom line ahead with the shares at session lows down 2.7%. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The House is set to begin voting any minute now on whether Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy can keep his job. A defiant McCarthy scheduled it for this afternoon after Representative Matt Gates filed a motion to oust him last night. If five Republicans were to vote to remove McCarthy, that would be enough, assuming all Democrats vote against him, too, which is party tradition. And in a letter to his caucus, the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, said Democrats will vote against McCarthy. Former President Donald Trump told reporters he plans to take the witness stand in his $250 million fraud trial at the, quote, appropriate time. He is named as a potential witness by his own lawyers and by lawyers for New York Attorney General Letitia James. And Chipotle bowls and salads may soon be constructed by a robot. The automated assembly line was developed in collaboration with kitchen technology company Hyphen. This is not the first time Chipotle has shown interest in robots, and it unveiled the AutoCado earlier this year, which cuts, cores, and peels avocados. And last year, it introduced Chippy, a robot that fries and seasons fresh tortilla chips. Kelly, that's the latest. Back to you. I'd love one in my kitchen at home. Uh, Chippy. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the future of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is hanging in the balance. We've got the details next. And as we head to break, check out shares of Molson Coors, which are halted for news pending ahead of the company's investment meeting. They were down about one and a half percent into that percent into that. We'll monitor the meeting, bring you any developments as the stock reopens for trading. The exchange is back after this with a Dow down almost 400 points. Welcome back to The Exchange. Not only the future, but the past work of the CFPB could be thrown into question today. The Supreme Court taking up the case, challenging the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The plaintiff here is a group representing payday lenders, which have been a target of the CFPB. They say the fact that the agency's funding comes from the Fed and not Congress is unconstitutional. A ruling against the CFPB could raise doubts about other agencies not funded by Congress, including the Fed itself. Here to discuss, Mark Calabria, a senior advisor at the Cato Institute and former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst Danny Savalos is back with us as well. Welcome to both of you. Mark, I always feel like, you know, the the doomsdays never come to pass. But um, (laughs) this is just one of three rulings that could kind of strike at the at the heart of a lot of these agencies. Uh, Kelly, that's right. And so I don't want to dismiss. I mean, I think right now it's still an open after hearing today's discussion at the court. It's a wide range of outcomes. I don't think any any outcome is a given at this point. Uh, And so there is a small probability. I don't want to dismiss that. You could see ramifications for other financial regulators. I think the odds of that are quite low. Uh, You know, if you think about it, maybe there's about a 20 percent chance that they come up with a ruling that applies to the Federal Reserve or the FDIC. But as we saw in the case where they looked at the removal powers a couple of years ago in 2020, the court really crafted a very narrow solution. So uh, my money is on this is about a 60 percent chance that this is going to be extremely narrowly decided and it's only going to apply to the CFPB. But again, we really won't know till we see the decision. What's what's more broadly at stake here, Danny? 
in theory, this decision could affect other similarly, and I use that word carefully, uh, similarly funded agencies. But as Mark pointed out, and I tend to agree with them, uh, this is an agency that is really uniquely funded. There doesn't appear to be really any other agencies that are funded this way. And if you go back to just basic civics, other agencies, executive branch and the legislative branch, can't get money, excuse me, I meant the executive branch primarily, cannot uh, get money unless it's, unless it's appropriated. And if it's not appropriated, then they can't have the money. What the Fifth Circuit, the lower court, decided, the appeals court, was that this agency essentially has uh, perpetual funding really without any control by Congress. And right. it's really alone among agencies for that reason. That's why there's a strong probability that there, this will be a narrow decision striking down only the funding to CFPB. Do you think, Mark, so some have suggested that its past rulings could then um, be kind of dismantled. Um, certainly any work it's currently doing and, and we're, it's working on uh, changing some things with credit cards that could have major implications. We'll talk about that later this week. You know, that could be potentially up for grabs. And, and so would it just require a change in where the funding comes from or does it undermine the, the sort of legitimacy of the entire agency? So let's let's start with the observation. The really big change to the agency was in 2020 when the court made the director removable. So, for instance, if the White House calls the CFP director today and says, your budget's going to be X or, or else we want to see your resignation, then it's going to be X. And so it's already lost a considerable amount of independence because the director can be removed by the president. But you've had a statute of limitations within the Administrative Procedures Act. So anything that's been out there for quite a while, say five or six years or more, is going to be fine. We ran into the same issue with the removal issue back in 2020. And so certainly I expect some litigation with some of the outstanding. Uh, but for the most part, the agency is going to have the ability, ability, if this is a narrow decision, to simply kind of bless everything it's done. But again, there's going to be some litigation. There's going to be a transition period. Ultimately, if it, the court rules against uh, CFPB, then CFPB will go into the congressional appropriations process. And, of course, we've got a number of other agencies, the Security Exchange Commission, the mm -hmm. CFTC. So we have, another, we have a number of financial regulators who are in the appropriations process. We know how that works. There's certainly a possibility that the court decides to give a stay where they say, okay, Congress, you have six months to fix this. Hmm. That's not an impossibility. Uh, and so the court is very aware about let's not disrupt the marketplace when we do this. And this is why I very much agree with Danny on that. I think we're going to get a narrow decision in CFPB is so unique that you can craft a decision that only applies to the CFPB. That's fascinating, though, Danny, and I'll give you the last word that you both seem to think this agency could change dramatically going forward. And if its funding ultimately changes, then so, too, might its ability to impose uh, future rules at its discretion. Exactly right. I mean, if the agency is funded in an unconstitutional manner, then one of the remedies could be the arguably the end of that agency as we know it today. Uh, and unless it is gone, it goes through the proper appropriations process, then arguably it is forever unconstitutional if, as is alleged, it can simply fund itself without any oversight from Congress. So uh, it simply cannot continue to exist if it violates the Constitution. Although I do anticipate, like Mark, that the Supreme Court is going to be mindful not to disrupt the economy and try to narrowly cabin this decision and, and possibly even give this an opportunity to be properly appropriated. This, this agency is truly an anomaly among federal agencies, which are either uh, funded one of two ways through appropriations bills 
or direct spending bills. Uh, this sort of exists in a nether region that uh, went largely challenged but not fully struck down until now. And the Fifth Circuit did strike, did essentially find it unconstitutional. So if you're betting, the bet, the uh, better money is on uh, the Fifth Circuit's decision being upheld with this Supreme Court composed as it is. Yeah, and again, whatever happens here, it does. it's one of three, and it could be a, a year in which the Supreme Court pushes back on the so-called administrative state. Gentlemen, thank you both. Really appreciate Thanks. your analysis today, Mark Calabria and Danny Savalos. Coming up, the NASDAQ 100 is down about 2% as yields jump once again, and Microsoft is the biggest drag, shaving off 33 points. Amazon, the second largest, good for 27. But only one of them is making a $9 billion bet on an AI tool. We'll get a behind-the-scenes look at Microsoft's co-pilot next. The Dow Jones Industrial Average now down 411 points, just off the session lows of 450. We're back after this. As the AI-fueled rally in tech stocks fades, investors are now trying to separate hype from reality. And Microsoft's new AI tool, Copilot, is a key test for the company. CNBC's Steve Kovac has that story for today's check, tech check. Tech, uh, check. Related or not to the pressure on the stock today, Steve? Uh, not related. This is not coming up for another month or so. But look, like you said, Kelly, all year everyone's been asking, can anyone besides NVIDIA generate meaningful sales directly from this AI boom we're experiencing? Well, Microsoft is about to try a month or so from now with the launch of its new AI assistant, Copilot, for its business customers. It comes at $30 per user per month. That's nearly double what companies are already paying for a Microsoft 365 subscription that includes apps like Teams, Outlook, and Word. Question investors are asking, though, is it worth that steep price? Microsoft has already had some customers testing an early version of Copilot ahead of the launch. I caught up with Kate Johnson. She's the CEO of Denver-based Lumen Technologies, and 300 of her employees have been using Copilot for over two months now. Take a listen. What I see is the potential for breakthrough productivity. I really feel like you, with the pace of diffusion of AI, it's now or never. You wait, you're going to get left behind. And I also spoke with one Lumen employee who told me Copilot allowed him to be in two places at once and even catch up on his missed meetings. Before I was using Copilot, that would have taken me probably a couple hours. It, it took me three minutes to be able to interact with Copilot in a Teams meeting uh, and bring that information current. Now, look, the pressure's on Microsoft to sell that experience we just heard about to the more than 300 million users across Microsoft 365, especially as companies are tightening their IT spending. I caught up with Microsoft's VP in charge of 365 business apps, Jared Spatero, on how he's pitching Copilot to his customers. We don't say, think of this as an addition to your IT spend. We say, think of this as a way of literally revamping all of your processes in your company. Most customers are very interested in productivity gains. They're very interested in what it can do to create value. And so we're going to start there. Now we'll start seeing next month what happens here. Microsoft, though, has said not to expect meaningful sales from Copilot until the middle of next year. And so, like you were saying in the tease to break, $9 billion of revenue. If you just do some simple math here, 
300 million users-ish, mm -hmm. and assuming all of those take on uh, the subscription, that's $9 billion in revenue a month. Doesn't mean that's what they're going to get, but that's right. the addressable market. There. Well, and that's what, a lot of that was priced into the stock, to be exactly. fair. It's very exciting. That GitHub also offers an interesting case study of, I think, their copilot, Microsoft owns them, right. obviously, and their copilot has had pretty massive take-up. Yeah, and especially because GitHub is, is catered to developers and coders and the like, and these AI tools, ChatGPT, talk to any coder in the world, they all have ChatGPT now bookmarked yeah. because it helps them so much when writing code. This is taking that kind of concept and helping you with email, meetings, even yeah. uh, uh, Carl, who I spoke to from Lumen Technologies, he was able to make a PowerPoint. He said it would have taken him hours to make. You just feed it the documentation you need and it spits out, gets you like 80% of the way there. It's pretty interesting. I can't wait to see how much uh, people, and it, all of our fortunes depend on it. If you're in the S&P 500, right. as big as Microsoft is. Steve, thank you very much sure today. Thing. We appreciate it. Microsoft, of course, lower today as the Dow's down 413. Coming up with demand for weight loss drugs like Ozempic showing no signs of slowing down. We've got both sides of the trade, a potential loser in the payment space, while there might be opportunity in this medical device name whose shares are down more than 40% over the past three months. The analyst is here to make his case next. Welcome back. The so-called weight loss miracle drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy may cause some other losses in the stock market, but not necessarily where you'd think. Diabetes treatments have been hit the hardest since the drugs took the spotlight. But Mizuho writing yesterday that restaurant payment system Toast could also see payments decline by $800 million a year through 2025 as the drug suppressed the appetite to spend at restaurants. Joining us on set is the analyst behind that note, Dan Dolive, senior fintech analyst at Mizuho. We're also joined by Jeffrey's Matthew Taylor, who says concerns about diabetes devices and treatments in particular are overblown. Welcome to both of you. Dan, we'll start with you. What's toast you really think could be toast from this? Yeah, thank you for having me again. Uh, I think it's, um, I think the weight loss drugs are gonna make toast lose weight, hmm. right? And um, we did some work with con in conjunction with our uh, medtech device analyst, Anthony Patron. So we used a lot of sort of very sophisticated, you know, studies about weight loss. And what we found out is that this is gonna be like a 25 to $30 billion drag on the US restaurant industry by wow. 2025. There's like 130 million people between obese people in America and type two diabetes that could be as much as 130 million people that have that diagnosis. And if only like 15 million of them, which is less than 15% use that, this is like a 25 to $30 billion drag on the US restaurant industry and like a potentially like a mid-single digit drag on volumes for toast because they're 100% exposed to restaurants. That, and the shares are down 6% today. They're down 22% over the past three months. It's incredible to see something potentially have this much impact. Obviously, you don't cover the restaurants, but I mean, this, you we're talking about huge, huge money that is potentially going to be lost as a result of this. Correct. And like people pushing, you know, people are pushing back saying it's only Upper East Side, Upper West Side, right. you know, people are buying it off. You know, I think the CFO of Walmart said something about this recently about that they're seeing, you know, trends at Walmart in terms of food consumption. So this is widespread. This is across all of America. It's not just New York City. It's not just Upper East Side. Is there additional pressure on Toast in a market day like this simply because of the fintech business model in general being a question mark? In other words, how much of its losses are because of weight loss and how much is just because of yields popping and this not being a very profitable company yet? It's actually a great question. So it, it, this is a long-term drag, like 24, 25. We actually see some near-term issues, right? They have trouble getting into the enterprise. We're seeing that in the numbers. 
Um, we've done survey on student loan debt, which shows you that 34% of people have student loan debts. And of them, 80%, almost 80% said that they're going to pair back their consumptions at restaurants. Hmm. So there's some real idiosyncratic drags on toast near term and then the long term you know, big deal is Ozempic, in my view. Right, and I think the point for people here is as they're looking at buying opportunities as the sell-off deepens, you're saying this is not necessarily one of them. I know there are some you do like. We'll come back to that uh, later, Dan, for now. Thank you very much, Dan Dollop with Mizuho. Meantime, medical device names have also been expected to take a hit as weight loss could lead to less demand for new hips and knees in the future, and the need for insulin would also seem to go way down. But my next guest says the sell-off and insulin delivery pod maker Insulet, whose shares are down 44% in the past three months, is overdone, and they're upgrading the stock now. Matthew Taylor is the analyst behind this note. Matt, bring us up to speed. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so as you said, the stock has been down over 40% since the select data came out. And we did analysis with physicians and survey work to show that POD's long-term opportunity shouldn't be crimped much by GLP-1. I think GLP-1s can coexist with diabetes tech, the diabetes tech, whether it's CGM or pumps, are still very underpenetrated in the type 2 market. And when you think about pod and insulin pumps, most of their use historically has been in type 1, which is relatively unimpacted right. by GLP-1. There's, so basically so, you think that for, even if overall insulin demand comes down somewhat, that the technology that they're involved with could still grow market share and therefore lead to gains? Absolutely. If you, if you want to think about it simply, the penetration in type 2 for insulin pumps is only about 5% today for intensive type 2. So even if you think GLP-1s will cut off 20% of the TAM 10 years from now, then the pro forma penetration is juiced by 20%. It's still very low. So there's a significant unmet need here still for insulin pumps, even in a GLP-1 world. And you have a $240 price target. You know, a lot of people are looking for traditionally parts of the market like healthcare that can be more defensive when things start to go belly up. But medical devices have really been in the heart of this uh, or the eye of the storm over the GLP drugs. Do you think that it's unwarranted for the entire class or just for these particular little, this particular little corner of it? Well, it's, it's probably even less warranted for the rest of the class, meaning hmm. that things like hips and knees could actually benefit from GLP once. If you think about knee surgery, for example, there's about 10% of patients who are contraindicated for knee surgery because they're too heavy or doctors don't want to operate on them because their outcomes could be bad. True. So actually losing weight could bring more people into the funnel versus dropping them down the bottom of it. No, I've heard of people who say, you know, friends, family who had to say, no, I need to lose weight so that I can have this surgery. So your price target for Insulet is $240, which would be some pretty significant upside. Is that more than the rest of the space would have? Or, or do you think there's significant upside across the, the class here? So we, we love the group here, actually, because it's been under pressure given utilization fears and GLP-1 pressure that we think is unfounded. But our upside on pod is about 50%. I mean, that's going to be more than average for sure in our coverage. And we think that investors can take advantage of this dislocation, whether it's in pod or Dexcom's another favorite in CGM and diabetes as well. Uh, as the story turns around and we see them both growing really strongly, over time, we think some of the overhang from GLP-1s can dissipate. Very interesting. Dexcom, Insulet, a couple of names down big, but you think this is opportunity. Matt, thanks for joining us to talk about it. We appreciate it today. Great. Thanks so much. Matthew Taylor with Jefferies. And before we go, don't forget, 
We look poised to see the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history tomorrow. 75,000 workers are prepared to walk out at 6 a.m. local for three days to protest staffing issues at Kaiser Permanente. In a statement yesterday, Kaiser said a strike was not justified and that, quote, we understand and share the frustration, the burnout and the exhaustion, but we will absolutely do the right thing for our employees to support them, reward them and be there for them, while also stressing the need to keep care affordable. Now, as for the union, its head, Caroline Lucas, who joined us last Friday, gave us a statement saying, the union remains willing to bargain, quote, up until the scheduled strike start time. However, no agreement can be made until Kaiser executives stop bargaining in bad faith and committing unfair labor practices. Negotiations are reportedly still underway. That does it for the exchange as we hit session lows across the board in the equity markets. Dow's down 462 points. Tyler's gearing up and I will join him for power lunch on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.